Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I had a behind-the-scenes book of The Two Towers, and... But I had it when I was too young to appreciate what oh. I was being told, really. And I was just mostly looking at it for references to draw pictures of the characters. Rusty Quill presents Enthusiasm. Hello, friends and fans, and welcome to Enthusiasm. I am your host, Helen Gould, one of the best Rusty Quillers, and this is the show where we talk about a few of our favourite things. And today, we're talking about one of my absolute most favouritest things, which is The Lord of the Rings. And I am totally stoked to be joined by Gavia, Jeffrey, and Sue. I'm going to do a little round of introductions. We'll go alphabetically as always. So, Gavia, can you give us your pronouns and tell us what you do? Hi, uh, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, she, her, and I am a film critic and fandom journalist. So I will be talking probably mostly about Lord of the Rings movies, which I love (laughs) a great deal. Oh, I look forward to that. And Jeffrey, what are your pronouns and what do you do? Hi, this is Jeffrey Nils Gardner. Pronouns they, them, status as second best Rusty Quiller. (laughs) And I am Rusty Quill's mastering editor. Wonderful. And finally, Sue, give us your pronouns and tell us who you are. I'm Sue Sims, pronouns she, her and your majesty. (laughs) And I have been playing on and off Gertrude in the Magnus Archives for several years. Indeed you have. Is on and off Gertrude the robot version? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a sci-fi version of the Magnus Archives where everyone's robots. (laughs) That would be fun. I mean, we were talking before the recording about um, 
the different vibes of Lord of the Rings, where in some places it feels like things are following fairy tale logic, and in some places it feels more like um, sort of mythology or legends. Um, I was wondering if anyone had any thoughts on that, because um, in a previous episode on Lord of the Rings, in the pilot season over on Patreon, we had some thoughts about how characters like Tom Bombadil sort of follow fairy tale logic, but characters from other parts and in other places of the book feel much more grounded and realistic. Um, I'd be interested to hear what people think about that. I think the problem with Tom Bombadil, I, I agree about the fairy tale uh, aspect. I think the mm. reason is that when Tolkien started writing Lord of the Rings, he really didn't have a clue what he was doing. I mean, he said this himself. <laughs> um, this is not a criticism. Uh, he, yeah. he knew he was writing a sequel to The Hobbit, and he knew there was going to be quite a lot of hobbitry in it, mm-hmm. but he really didn't have much idea uh, of where he was going at this stage. So he put Tom Bombadil in because Tom Bombadil was a small wooden doll that actually belonged to one of his sons. Oh! Um, and, yeah, and he thought, you know, it'd be rather fun. He'd already written various verses, which were much, much, much later on. I think in the 19... late 60s? I can't remember exactly. They were published mm. as the, the Adventures of Tom Bombadil. And there are various poems about, uh, you know, what he did and about Goldberry. If you want to read about his courting of Goldberry, that's where you go. But the great problem wow. is I had that, no idea that it was based on a doll. Yeah, it was, certainly it was. But the problem was, of course, that as the, um, as, as the story went on, Tom Bombadil becomes less and less relevant. And that's mm. why Peter, Peter Jackson could cut him out of the film without anyone really missing him. I mean, <laughs> I didn't because I never terribly liked Tom Bombadil anyway. But I don't know, did, you, <laughs> did the rest of you miss him from the films? I mean, I didn't, but I I read the the books precisely once before seeing the films at the age of 11. So although I remember the books, they are perhaps not as wedded to my image of the movies. But like in terms of the like the different tones, I think that's part of the reason why like such a wide variety of people kind of engage Mm. with the story, because you've got some parts that are so cozy, all of the, the hobbits. And then you've got some parts that feel like these huge epic tales mm. and obviously Tolkien was kind of drawing from all this mythology like he was really influenced by stuff like Beowulf he was extremely influenced by Norse sagas and mythology and like the Song of the Nibelungs which later became the Ring Cycle by Wagner so he's like very influenced by that which is also a story about you know dwarves and elves and a magical ring <laughs> and Gandalf <laughs> kind of has these resemblances to Odin so he is really drawing from all that stuff and like he basically as an academic was obviously like a linguist and was only interested in literature that happened kind of before medieval times like for him Shakespeare was too modern so that's kind of why it has this tone and it's had this knock-on effect to other fantasy writers. I think there's a thing um, there also in that it always felt to me and maybe it was just that these were kind of the the stories I grew up with simultaneously the the Iliad and and Greek um, history and and mythology and um, and Tolkien. I think that there is a piece of it that is um, I'm going to say epic um, with a capital E rather than mythology in that like the the disconnect of like, were these real people? Were these not? This is just history, even though it is obviously fantastical, uh, kind of gets blurred um, in the way, you know, yeah, of a um, an Iliad, a Herodotus, maybe even, um, that this is this is a an early kind of history. Mm. That completely makes sense. That's such a good point because it's like Tolkien is writing from the perspective of embedding himself in this world that he's created. And it's like, people talk about escapism, but no one had as much escapism in his life as Tolkien. Because like, he started creating, you know, Quenya, the Elvish language, when he was like 17 or 18, when he just started undergrad. And he was completely obsessed with this world for his entire life. So, I mean, he wanted to be in Middle Earth. Like he kind of thought of himself as a Hobbit type person, like in terms of his own personality. And obviously, like when he was a young man, he lived through World War One, which you can really kind of tell in the in the mm. books and the movies mm-hmm. because it's all these stories which have this sense of kind of pain and grief, but also nostalgia. So he was kind of escaping from the real world into this 
ancient saga that he'd created of a world that I think kind of felt real to him. I feel like whenever, as a writer, whatever you create does feel real to you in some way, otherwise you probably wouldn't be making it. And the the amount of words that he wrote about this world and about this mythos, I can absolutely see it being um, a form of escapism. Because that's also, you know, that's part of the reason why I write. I'm like, well, let me think about other people's problems for a while (laughs) and let's make them worse than mine so I can feel better. Gavio, what you're saying there really, um, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think back to when I was first encountering these stories, I think my my father read The Hobbit to me at four, and wow. we kind of read it uh, or talked about it or Lord of the Rings just about every year since. <laughs> so much of the story is nested in that, like you know, the ages of the world and like the idea that, like, no, this is this is Earth. This it, you know, elves have gone away now, sure, but like um, these humans are the same <laughs> humans we have here. It's just this is way back in the day. Um, mm. And, you know, hobbits are there if you look for them. Um, they just don't really come out much anymore. Mm. Yeah. I, I, that, that was always, I think it's there in the text, but also, you know, consuming it at a very young age, I think they all had that air of like, oh, this is a reality that we could step into pretty easily. Mm. Um, and there's so much infrastructure behind everything in the Lord of the Rings, you know, through the Silmarillion that was unlike something like, you know, the Star Wars universe where it's created by hundreds of people over time. It's really just this incredible amount of backstory built by just, you know, one person or, you know, uh, I guess one person and his son uh, completing things. Mm. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. From a reader's point of view, can really be escapism. Um, and you're yeah. quite right, of course, about um, Tolkien. The languages, I think, weren't escapism, but the the stories probably were. Mm-hmm. But we do tend to use that word escapism, don't we, very negatively. Do you remember the was it called, actual conversation? Um, I think it was between Lewis and uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien when... Tolkien had been accused of escapism, and Lewis said, well, yes, but um, who would be most worried about people escaping? Answer, mm. jailers. Yeah, I'm on I'm on Lewis's side. I, I don't think that escapism is a dirty word, and I think that if none of us were able to escape into our imaginations, I think we would all go even madder than we all are right now. I don't think there's going to be many anti-escapism voices on this podcast. (laughs) And what a world to escape into. If you think, I mean, like it is a world where there is, you know, evil with a capital E and dangerous creatures and uh, war, but it's also a world in which, you know, no one gets sick. No one, no one there. People die, but it is at the, um, it is in service of a greater good and in um, mm. it's not random or small or sad. Well, sad maybe, but... And there's lots of delicious descriptions of food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, in the, um, in the Silmarillion, I would argue there's definitely... I'm sure people do get sick. I, there are definitely people who die of having broken hearts. Well, but that's that's like the opposite of a small, inconsequential death. That is that is feeling so deeply. Oh. Whereas there's there, I, I think there there's a cause and a meaning to death. I see. So you're talking about how nothing feels. It's not accidental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not just um, random chance, which definitely makes sense. I want to go back briefly because, um, Jeffrey, you said that your dad read, was it Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit to you when you were four? Uh, We started with The Hobbit, yeah. I was um, given a copy of The Hobbit when my, my, I was going to say baby sister, uh, she now has a two-year-old of her own, so uh, not so much baby sister anymore. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, at my sister's birth, I was given a beautiful copy of the hobbit um with the uh these gorgeous oil um paintings i believe uh all throughout just um and it's i still have it it looks like 
an ancient tome. It's weathered and, you know, cracked and uh, pages browning and all that. So, um, so you clearly heard or read the books before you saw the films? Uh, yes, yeah. Is that true for the other two of you, Gavi or Sue? Yeah, yeah. I read the books um, when I was 11, right before the movies came out. Mm. Um, so I was kind of right at like the apex of the millennial generation that were just like obsessed with Lord of the Rings in our yes. early teens when it like came to yet another really big audience. So I think I read the books either once or twice, but I still feel like I remember them much better than most books I would have read because obviously I've seen the films so many times and they're kind of part of the pop culture discourse still. <laughs> and for me, I've talked about reading The Hobbit, um, certainly well, well before the films. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the film, well, the films didn't come out. I think the first film was 2001, I think. Mm. And um, yes. by that time I was... Mm, well, much, much older than uh, the rest of you. But, yeah, reading The Hobbit, on the back flap of the dust jacket, it uh, there was a little sort of puff for Lord of the Rings. And mm. uh, it was quite clearly a, a grown-up book, and I was seven. I thought, well, I will read these when I'm, tw- when I'm 12. And Aww. I did. I saved up my pocket money and my Christmas money, and, and then I went out and I bought all three volumes of... Um, the Lord of the Rings, I mean, um, the which age. I still have. Yeah. Oh, yes, it was amazing. Um, and then I just sort of submerged mm. myself in them for days and days. I don't think my parents got anything out of me at all. Um, <laughs> it was, oh. Yeah, you would never find me without, in general, you'd never find me without a book when I was a kid. I just took a book everywhere with me, no matter where I was going. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So that's really interesting because my first introduction to Lord of the Rings was the films. Mm. I remember seeing the advert on the television, and there was that shot of um, Frodo and and his and like when he puts the ring on in uh, in Bree, and um, that that shot it's very golden, and like the the ring is coming up towards the camera, and his finger is just coming up. Yes, into it. yes. I remember that so vividly. Not not because of the films, but I remember that advert. And I was like, this looks interesting. And I made my dad take me to see it. I mean, it's really a testament to the quality of the visual imagery in those movies. Like they are oh, yeah. just incomparably good in terms of like Hollywood mm. releases, just unbelievable movies. Yes, they are incredible. Yes. I mean, the, the, the Return of the King, of course, won all those Oscars, but mm. they were really being given for the whole trilogy, weren't they? Mm. And not just for... In the way that C.S. Lewis got the Carnegie Medal for The Last Battle, Obviously, mm. it was really for the the whole of the seven Narnia books, but the, yeah, I thought the films were, were, were. I didn't expect to enjoy them, but I really did. <laughs> I mean, they're really eye opening in the context of like other big Hollywood blockbusters because yeah. there was pretty much nothing apart from Star Wars that's at that caliber of filmmaking. And, you know, they've got this incredible cast. Obviously, we all know the cast of Lord of the Rings is perfect oh, and yes. amazing. Um, <laughs> But but it's, you know, the, the level of craft and kind of care that was put into that is not something you see in any other blockbuster franchise because, you know, there's so many cooks involved in cooking the meal, you know, and they're not made by people who really care about it. Mm. And it really does feel like a fluke, you know, that Peter Jackson was able to get this massive army of artisans together to make this just like extremely artistically complex series of movies. And when you rewatch them, it's like, yes, they're extremely entertaining. But as a critic watching them as an adult, I was just like blown away by, you know, the lighting, mm-hmm. <laughs> the costume mm. design, the music, which I could talk about for hours. It's just... Yeah, the, the, the Lord of the Rings films are just astonishing. It, it's things like, well, the swords. Mm. Now, you don't get really close-ups of most of the swords, but every one of them, they're made by craftsmen. They, they've got the... What do you call it? Um, like, like in the engraving. The, um, yeah, the runes and stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they had all of the pieces of writing. They just had this one calligrapher who was writing like letters that would remain yes. inside envelopes and that sort of thing. <laughs> yes, yes. The attention to detail in the films is just incredible. I had, um, I had a behind-the-scenes book of The Two Towers and... But I had it when I was too young to appreciate what oh. I was being told, really. And I was just mostly looking at it for references to draw pictures of the characters. I mean, I remember oh, my friends and I would all 
watch and rewatch all of the special features on the DVDs. And honestly, mm. DVD special features, they should bring those back for movies that are released in streaming because mm-hmm. they are really interesting. And the ones for Lord of the Rings, I think they, they really understood that they wanted to record everything p- for posterity because there were so many people involved. And yes. like most average viewers are not going to be aware of the level of work that goes into that stuff. And yes, you know, the costuming alone is astounding. Oh, everything. I've got all those behind the scenes books and, you know, they're just... Uh, Unbelievable, and of course, filming in New Zealand, I mm. I watched that, and I watched the mountains, and I thought they can't be real; it has to be CGI. But they're real. <laughs> they are, they are. It's incredible. I I, mean, I think there's also something to be said for the quality of them as adaptations. You know, I think about, mm. yeah. uh, I mean, Marvel, obviously, adaptations in kind of loose or strict ways from uh, a vast wealth of comic books. But, you know, I think about the um, uh, the film version of The Golden Compass that came out not exactly in that era, a little after, but not too long after. Mm-hmm. And just the vast gulf of not just quality, but care that went into the adaptation. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think the 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 cutting of Tom Bombadil, it's whether or not you like that character, it's a thing that and and numerous other shifts or changes, I think were done really intelligently in terms of bringing mm. this from a you know an epic book into an epic film. Um, I I also think it's and I will say having only seen the first of the Hobbit movies and, you know, being someone who has especially to the Hobbit, a deep emotional connection. um, I think those were really poorly adapted. Yeah. I elected not to watch those. I was just like, I do not want to see this charming short children's fantasy story turned into three extremely overlong action movies. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and, and exactly, exactly that. I mean, part of the thing that is, so beautiful about the hobbit is you know how how many of the problems are solved through cleverness or riddles or yeah. you know uh yeah. through delaying and playing the trolls off of each other until the sun dawns and and i felt like at least in the first film those were all replaced with with combat with you know sword fights mm-hmm. and yeah, yes. yeah. It, it felt like Peter Jackson had gone, oh, um, we had lots of, or, or I don't know who, it may not have been Peter, but someone had gone, oh, Lord of the Rings had loads of really good battles in it. We should probably put those into The Hobbit because that's what people liked about Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. It was all the battles. Um, I was so disappointed. I went to see The Hobbit at Leicester Square Cinema on like the night it came out and I had such goosebumps when I heard the old familiar music and I saw the font coming up on the screen and by the end of it I was like oh no I don't think I liked that very much (laughs) I mean it kind of turns The Hobbit into just like any other blockbuster franchise and the thing that's so Mm. magical about Lord of the Rings films is that instead of listening to kind of some studio exec that thinks they know what the audience wants and is making decisions based on sort of focus grouping and you know three-act structures where you have to have a battle at a certain point. Even though the Lord of the Rings movies depart from the source text in some ways, they're extremely Mm. emotionally sincere in a way that the vast majority of other movies aren't. And they're kind Mm -hmm. of, they understand the core themes and the things that you're meant to be feeling when you're just looking at certain things. So like you get this sense of like nostalgia or you get this sense of kind of worshipful impressiveness at certain scenarios. And that kind of religiosity is just not something you see in other blockbusters and also like like i said like in terms of the emotional sincerity the fact that it's just like a very sensitive story like they are just completely unironically delving into the emotions of these characters you know which is not something you see a lot in films that are about men because hollywood is really into either critical or just like completely endorsing depictions of toxic masculinity and Lord of the Rings films are like no these people all have very close ties and they are very Mm. open about their feelings and we understand that you know there's a really good um, YouTube video out there Um, I think it's Pop Culture Detective um, who did it so they did um, this it's about half an hour long it's called Boys Don't Cry Except When They Do and it's a really interesting because a lot of uh, the videos that they do are about um 
examinations of masculinity and femininity and sexism and mm-hmm. society in film. And this video is so interesting for the for like it's a deep dive into um, the ways in which men are allowed or not allowed to cry and to display vul- vulnerability or weakness. And we do see a lot of vulnerability and weakness in the um, in the male characters of the Lord of the Rings in a way that you don't often see. Well, they're allowed to comfort each other. They're allowed mm-hmm. to be warm and affectionate to each other. Yes. It can go too far. I got terribly bored by the last bit of, uh, or nearly the last bit, um, of um, Return of the King, where Frodo and Sam are sitting on the, the slopes of Mount Doom. And I kept saying, oh, come on, eagles. Come on. It did no, go on a bit. No, that's one of my favourite parts. Yeah, I'm dude. sorry, it's not oh, mine. I, I just... Uh, yeah, well, I, they I love didn't... each other, Sue. Well, I know. I'm fine. I'm happy with them. But, you know, they don't have to just keep going on and on and on because it's... The, the, the problem is that um, I... Basically, I wanted to get to the bit which, in fact, they didn't show, which mm. was the scouring of the Shire. Ah. That was the problem for me. You know, there, there was a lot of the, the emoting between Frodo and Sam there, but there wasn't mm. any emoting over the, shire, the scouring of the Shire, where in the books there is a lot of emoting, especially from Sam, because of the, the, yeah. the ghastly things that, uh, that um, Saruman and his crew have been doing, you know. But because Jackson decided, understandably, to leave that out, mm. and, and he explains it, of course, on, uh, in one of the extended versions, you know, the, the people discussing things. But I missed that, and I just kept thinking, well, you know, if they just cut out about, you know, five hours of Frodo and Sam emoting, we could have had the souring <laughs> of the Shire. So I got annoyed about that. And, and Faramir. I got very annoyed about what Jackson did with Faramir. I think we're going to take a break and we're going to come back to that in a second because that sounds like something I want to hear about. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. And welcome back. So I want to go back briefly and I want to discuss the difference in the endings between the books and the films. Because um, as you mentioned, Sue, the scouring of the Shire is taken completely out of the films, but it's a substantial chunk of uh, Return of the King. And it gives a very different feeling to the ending. Um, because um, in the films, they come back and the Shire is just how they left it. And in the books, they come back and the war has followed them home. And I'd really love to hear people's opinions on, um, I guess, on the differences between those two endings. I mean, Sue, you you would prefer to have the scouring stuff in, I guess. Well, I don't know. Um, When I heard Peter Jackson actually explaining why he'd done it, Mm. it made very, very good sense. He basically wanted to end on a, a more triumphant note. Yeah, fair. Um, and the scouring, shire, the scouring of the Shire, of course, is very untriumphant. I mean, they win and they beat um, Lotho and Saruman and all the rest of it. Yeah. But there's a, a sort of... It's melancholy, ultimately, mm. isn't it? Um, and I can see exactly why Jackson changed that. Um, and, of course, to be fair... He did have a tiny, tiny bit of it, didn't he? In the... Um, in the vision. I can't even remember. Is, the, is it the Fellowship mm. of the Ring? Yeah, when they're in Lothlorien. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, Frodo follows um, uh, Galadriel. And she mm. has that beautiful bowl of water, which is straight from the book, of course. And yes. he looks into it. And what he sees is the scouring of the Shire. Yeah. And then Galadriel says that bit about... Um, you know, it may never happen, and it's only if people perhaps turn aside to try and prevent it, um, and and that's it. So he, you could say he gets it in a tiny mm. bit. Yes, well, but I think there's something, uh, I mean, really looking at that, like how how true and and difficult of a of a thing to chew on of. You know, Frodo does everything right, um, and mm. and does win and does destroy the ring, and still, his worst vision comes true, and like, yeah. I, and and that's a a really powerful thing. So, the the films are you know heavily produced by American companies, and I want to advance the idea that um, the ending of the films is a much more kind of American understanding of war with Tolkien in World War One, and, you know, looking at things in World War Two, even, um, you have a, a, a world where the, the war does come home and is, is fought on, on home soil. And mm. for America, you know, the, the experience of the world wars is going out and fighting and then coming home to a boom and to prosperity and to safety. Yeah. And um and I think that's kind of the fundamental difference. That's really interesting. Yeah. That hadn't struck me. Yeah. I mean structurally mm. it fits much more in with the sort of conventional victory arc. I mean, for me, yeah. they're both very different stories and I think they're I don't think it's like one is the better one. I think they're both good and just different. No, no. But People do still kind of remark about how Frodo's finale at the end of those films, despite the fact that they've given it this much more victorious arc overall, like Frodo's role is still much more downbeat than we're used to seeing. Like, it's not like, oh, life's a party now, because it does actually end with him. You know, he has lifelong trauma and he feels isolated from his original community and he never recovers from it, which is kind of the end Mm. of of the film. So it still feels very unusually bittersweet for this kind of story. And I, I think that's that's even that's it, it's very much there in the films and is really strong in the books in in some similar in some different ways. Yeah, Frodo is um you know obviously physically uh is is the nine-fingered hobbit and uh you know that that gets highlighted a lot, but also um just there are all of these descriptions of of him having kind of wasted and being thin yeah. and 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 uh and pale and, yeah, yeah and and both and you see that in Bilbo too in in Lord of the Rings I was about to say that Bilbo did the same thing when he came back from uh the Lonely Mountain he also locked himself away 
and became sort of... But Bilbo was sort of like a friendly eccentric and Frodo's become a sad eccentric. Well, and the idea that, you know, Sam stays in the Shire and, you know, continues mm. life, but Frodo and Bilbo kind of... It, it's 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 maybe freighted as a reward, but kind of have to depart and go into the West yeah. because they are... They they have been so diminished by the the horror of of kind of the ring of of being corrupted by this thing. Yeah, and the fact that Frodo was so young when he went away because like he is effectively mm. kind of eighteen in the world of hobbits, and you know that's very visible in the movies because Elijah Wood was so young when they started filming. Mm-hmm. And Sam is kind of canonically this established adult. Actually, he wasn't eighteen. Um... I think he's more like 30. Well, no, he's 33, um, but in terms of the Hobbit Oh, I life. know, but, but 33 is when Hobbits come of age. But actually, he's, he's older than that. He's 33 when Bilbo is 101. But then there's a and stretch then there's a of few years, years between. Isn't there? Yes, he's oh, about well, I 50, guess I was thinking of the movies <laughs> where he yeah. does just pop off. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's right. But he's about 50. Um, in, in human years, that would be about 30. Um, mm. On the other hand, Merry and Pippin are really, really young. Okay. I mean, yeah. neither, neither of them have... I, I think um, Pippin particularly is about the equivalent of 17. Uh, oh, if, you, if you look Pippin. at the, um, um, the family trees in the back of the, the books, uh, at the back of the, Lord, the Return of the King, you can actually work out all their ages, which, uh, of course, I did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sad. This sounds but, like yes, me organising right. all of the Sherlock Holmes stories by chronology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, Jeffrey, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Bilbo describes himself as feeling stretched, mm-hmm. like butter scraped across too much bread. And of course, he hasn't used the ring very much at all. Whereas yeah. Frodo is is using it and carrying it um, all the time for thirteen months. Um, yeah. And he says, doesn't he? It towards the end, I've been wounded. Um, I've been wounded by knife and sting and tooth. Mm. And it's not just the ring; it's it's all, it's all the other horrible things that have happened to him. Yeah. Yes. I. I will say I've become so much more sympathetic to Frodo as I've gotten older, um, and so much more um, admiring of like the courage that it takes. Because I guess because um, my understanding of trauma has grown a lot mm-hmm. since I was well, obviously since I was like eleven. <laughs> Um, the idea of having to carry something that to other people might seem small but to you is like a massive weight in your mind and it takes everything that you have just to take another step and then the the marks of that staying with you for such a long time like I really empathize with Frodo I think I think a lot especially over the last couple of years about that phrase I feel like butter over too much bread like I have like that is so that's so relatable <laughs> lately. Yeah, I know it's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? It's, it is. Um, but in the end, I think Tolkien did. He he says he says, doesn't he, that in the end, Sam also went the last of the ring bearers. Yeah, he goes to the west. Mm-hmm. But I've never quite believed that because Sam fits so nicely into his world, doesn't he? I always I interpreted that as his love and loyalty to Frodo. Me too. Yes, well, I agree about that. I agree, but and I'm not sure, to be fair, that um, it's a bit of a throwaway as far as Tolkien's concerned. You know, he he says it, but he's not really um, he's not really worried that much one way or the other. <laughs> I'm not sure I am either. But um, mm. yeah. I think he followed Frodo. I think that he does. Um, so well, he does. I mean, Tolkien says so. So we'd have to believe him. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was a ring bearer for a little bit. There's another thing uh, in terms of the adaptation that I think is really um, is really powerful in uh, the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings, and and I think that is the kind of deep awareness of kind of all of the ancillary material. Uh, I feel like mm. Peter Jackson is always in conversation with, also with the Silmarillion. Yeah. Even at times 
where, you know, yes, there are some kind of, uh, they feel a little bit like fan service, like, oh, we're going to throw in Manwe here and things like that. But like, <laughs> um, I, it does, it feels like it is being built in, they are building a reality where those those stories and that history exists also. Yeah. And I think that's really important. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember, again, having um the lord of the rings read to me i guess it was would have been you know five six years old um i had uh i guess you would say a lot of like abstract questions um and my father having read the silmarillion had answers for them you know i i remember very clearly um uh, it, you know the Balrog is down in moria and i'm i'm uh, oh so who's the Balrog? and my dad said well uh you know Gandalf is kind of like an angel and the Balrog is is one of those. And what I took from that was, okay, so the Balrog and Gandalf are cousins and they just haven't seen each other for a long time. This is like my cousin Matt uh, and Katie who live in Utah and like, okay, yeah, Um, which I mean is – but but I think – the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings has that mythic weight on Gandalf like is very clearly not just some human who has learned some spells <laughs> you know this is a creature yeah um inhabiting boy having also talked about Hannibal with you all you know inhabiting a human suit and kind yeah. of on par <laughs> with this 30 foot tall creature of smoke and fire uh and that's why you hire Ian McKellen <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very impressive the way the movies managed to kind of illustrate that sense of there being this really deep world building because obviously Tolkien attracts a very specific kind of reader who loves to learn a massive amount of information and like study the Silmarillion <laughs> and all of the appendices and stuff, but you can't put that kind of information in a movie. And whenever a yeah. film tries to do that kind of thing and give you loads of lore, it doesn't work because your mm. emotions need to focus on the film, not your brain, really. Yes, and the thing yeah. that makes Lord of the Rings so good is most of that world building, apart from the stuff that's plot specific, is illustrated visually. So mm-hmm. as the yes. movies like travel through Middle-earth, we get this sense of history, even if you're not thinking about it consciously, because you kind of start yeah, in Hobbiton. And like, and yeah, because like, it, mm. literally you're traveling back in time from Hobbiton in like the 19th century like rural environment where it's really comforting and you travel back through these different stages of history as you go to like the elfish Mm. lands and like the viking warriors of rohan and then you basically end up in this sort of like primordial volcano at the end so Mm. it's like time travel through architecture and kind of the scenery design and the types of tree and like the size of things and you just you you engage with that without understanding what you're seeing and then the more you learn you're like wow i I really do understand that there's like this deep history that's happening that is a that's a very it's a very intelligent comment actually i shouldn't sound surprised (laughs) thank you that's why (laughs) they pay me to do the film criticism (laughs) oh no i think i I can hear the teacher in you there (laughs) oh i'm afraid so yeah absolutely you can take the girl out of the school when you retire but you can't take the school out of the girl so yeah yeah, (laughs) i think that's um this whole balrog thing was fascinating because of course um, I read Lord of the Rings when I was 12, which would have been mm. 1964. And the Silmarillion wasn't published till 1977. Mm. Oh, and wow. uh, so I had no idea what this Balrog was. Um, and obviously, um, Gandalf knows. Did you have a vision in your head? I can't remember how clearly it's described. <laughs> I had no vision at all. I'm very bad, actually, at visualising things, and I tend not to do it very much. Um, it's all language for me. So Gandalf says, um, I a Balrog and I am already weary. And I thought, what the hell is a Balrog? Well, I, don't suppose I, I don't suppose I thought, what the hell, because I was 12. But, you know, it was that sort of uh, reaction. Yeah. And it really isn't, dis- the Balrog isn't described that much. Um, no, I, I envisaged him insofar I as I imagined anything as a creature with wings. Because um, Tolkien talks hmm. about... Um, he has used the word wings, but I think it's metaphorical. Um, hmm. And it wasn't until... Um, I, it's the same with Treebeard. I mean, you know, imagining an Ent is really, really hard. <laughs> yes. 
And I, and think yeah, I have well. an instant. I, I know what I think an ent looks like because of the films. I because can't imagine. Of the films. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we're talking about um, a gap of almost 40 years between my mm. first reading and when I saw the film, the first film. Yeah. And in that time, I think I just didn't really imagine. I didn't, I couldn't <laughs> imagine the Balrog and I didn't imagine the Ent. Um, wow. I loved the Balrog in the films. I wasn't quite so convinced by the Ents. I don't know. Perhaps I'm being unfair to the films. What did you I think? I quite liked the Ents. I really liked how they were different kinds of trees and you could tell what different kinds of trees they were because of the way Jonan liked their physicality and stuff like that. Um, I yes. quite liked them. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly true. I think it was just the slightly sort of CGI-ishness, mm, really. Yeah. Because um, so much of the rest of the film wasn't CGI. And it, you know, it was... Oh, I don't know. Um, but even, yeah, even so. I'm, they, they did it. They did it really well. And I love the idea of going back in time. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. We've almost come to time, so I just want a quick quick fire question um which i did warn you about before the recording which is that i would like to hear who your favorite characters are and why um as i've said many times previously my favorite is sam i appreciate a down-to-earth um loyal friend very much but i have a i have different soft spots for all literally every character um but sam i think is my fave well, Aragorn is my favourite because he's very cool and I think <laughs> Viggo Mortensen's performance and physical beauty are unparalleled. But Legolas is a close second because I think he's just secretly a huge freak. I think Legolas is undercover <laughs> a very weird character and I love that for him. <laughs> Have you ever done that thing where you watch for Orlando Bloom's oh, facial expressions? Because he only has like I 10 just, lines wonderful marvellous just, just empty <laughs> nothing going on in the head I, God I love him <laughs> just twitching at the distance <laughs> some primo wig acting <laughs> how about you Jeffrey? oh um if if we can expand it I am going to say Bjorn uh the Ooh. the warg skin changer uh from the Hobbit is just um just one of my favorite characters this uh and maybe it's mm. because i too am large and uh you know was built to swing axes and survive the cold uh and love cooking for people <laughs> in my house um but if uh if we're sticking to um lord of the rings um i am going to say gandalf just Ooh. as a um powerful wise and um i am always attracted to characters that are shaped like people but are um kind of expanded out um and and are in fact lots of dimensions folded in and packed in tightly mm. yeah also gavia thanks for um I think it was you earlier who mentioned that Gandalf and Odin have lots of similarities because I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me beforehand, but of course they're similar. <laughs> it sounds like an old man walking around with a hat and a stick. Um, and Sue, do you have a favourite character? Yeah, well, really, my favourite character is Sam. I, I agree mm, totally. Yes. And for the same reasons as, as yours, Helen. But <laughs> we can't have the same character for this. So I'm going to choose in the, in the book... And to some extent in the film, Eowyn, who Ooh, I, I good love. choice. Um, I, I just love her. Oh, I don't know. She's the original strong woman, but most mm. of the strong women in modern films are completely stupidly unrealistic. You know, someone who's sort of five foot uh, tall and, and weighs about 100 pounds and beating up sort of six foot eight guys. And it's, it's silly. But Eowyn... She's incredibly brave, but equally, she she is a sword maiden. She works within oh. her own sphere of skill. So I love her. And also, can I just put in a word in the films for Gollum? Because Andy Serkis <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> is just the most amazing actor. And of course, they 
they only had him originally as a voice actor, yeah. but then they actually based all the film Gollum's movements on Andy Serkis, and yeah. he's just exceptional. <laughs> no, he's a um, phenomenon. A total it's, it's phenomenon. excellent. I, I really appreciate what, what he did and what they were able to do oh, with his yeah. performance. <laughs> um, and that's all we have time for. This has been another one of those conversations where I'm like, everybody is so smart. I'm surrounded by intelligent people. What am I going to do? Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom with me. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Or at least as much as I have. I hope that you that you participants have also enjoyed it. Oh, yes. It's been great. Love Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Love to learn about Lord oh. of the Rings. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. I think we've all learnt. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's been really great. Well, thank you all for coming on. Thank you, listener, for listening. And for now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from all of them. Do you want to say goodbye, everybody? Goodbye. Goodbye. Enthusiasm is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 4.0 International License. It is directed by Helen Gould, produced by Lori Ann Davis, with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner, and edited by Marissa Ewing, Tessa Room, Jeffrey Nils Gardner and Catherine Ranella. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, all. It's Helen here the voice of Azu from Rusty Quill Gaming, and the host and director of Enthusiasm. Today, I'm here to tell you about The Program. The Program audio series is a science fiction anthology podcast set in a world where money, state, and God are fused into a single entity. Every episode is a standalone story featuring ordinary people inhabiting this extraordinary world. And for them, it's not the future that is terrifying, but our present. The programme is sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, but it is always smart. Find out more about the programme at www.rustyquill.com or www.programaudioseries.com or search for The Programme Audio Series wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have fun and enjoy the episode.